Maybe you've met someone who can relate to this picture on the screen here. Because there's a lot of people like this. People today are, are, are greatly concerned about their identity. Uh, they want to know what, what is their life purpose. Uh, they, they want some self-worth. They want self-acceptance. And, of course, a big buzzword is the whole self-esteem movement. And as a result of that, there's, there's been a lot of books written on this stuff. And people go to seminars all the time and heaps of articles on the Internet, blogs and so forth that talk about all this stuff or trying to help people fulfill these various longings. But sadly, because God and His Word are usually not considered in this equation, the only source for finding the truth is usually eliminated, and uh, people are often led back to themselves for the answers. Of course, if you try to find the answers in yourself, well, that's a disaster, because I'm a mess. Why, why go to a mess and a disaster to find hope and help and healing? It just that doesn't work. So the end result is just tell people they're really all right and that um, what identity and worth and meaning they find in life. Well, you just got to find it in yourself and, and, and you got to find it for yourself. No one else can do that for you. And so we're told to think of ourselves first and we're shown how to you know get on top by using and, and manipulating other people right climb the corporate ladder so to speak and just step on people along the way you know you, you need to uh, intimidate other people before you're intimidated and we're told how to be successful how you can be number one and we're counseled to find meaning in you know in our in our heritage you know you got to know which tribe you're from what what is your your race or whatever you want to call it? Find your ethnic roots. Maybe you'll find some meaning in that. Or, you know, <laughs> well, people do all sorts of things to try to find their meaning, to try to find their roots. But this approach, of course, is actually um, it doesn't remove the problem from us. And then there's there's people, others. They said about trying to establish their worth by doing good works. Some even become heavily involved in church and uh, serve, uh, you know, they serve in the church, find various Christian activities to get involved in. They, they, they look for praise and commendation in that way. And, and before long, they're entrapped in the, the same sort of things that uh, guys in Jesus' day were entrapped in. And I'm, I'm referring to those scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, right? Get involved in, in these activities, find my identity in the religious games, well, that doesn't work either. And so as their self-satisfaction grows, you're, actually what's going to happen is your spiritual life's going to shrivel up, and uh, that's a disaster. But every human effort at self-satisfaction is subject to what, what people call the law of diminishing returns. So what, what happens is genuine satisfaction is never achieved and increased achievement only is going to bring in increased desire for the very thing you're you're longing for and you're chasing after and you never get. It's like the poor dog chasing its tail. You ever seen that? Never gets it. Keep chasing the thing you can't get. I know you. Somebody's going to ruin my illustration and say, "Hey, my dog actually caught his tail." I I don't care. You don't miss the point. All right. People are doing that sort of thing. 
But more importantly, the guilt and the fear that cause that dissatisfaction are suppressed. It's not actually relieved. And so the longer those superficial games are played, the deeper become our depressions and, and the feelings of our guilt. They're not dealt with. And so the only way you can achieve a true sense of, of self-worth and actual meaning and significance is to have a right relationship to the one who made you. I'm referring to the Creator. That's your only hope. By the way, you look at this next slide. It, isn't it interesting? Because we, we often have this identity crisis. A lot of people have the identity crisis, but you just add two little letters in there to the word crisis and you get Christ. My identity is in Christ. And that makes all the difference. See, a person without Christ has no spiritual value. You don't have the right standing before God. You have no purpose and meaning in this world. However, someone who is a Christian, that makes you a child of God. And the Bible says you're now a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And if you have no comprehension of those blessings, you need to hear the book of Ephesians. See, you need to understand the position that Christians have in their Savior. And praise God, we have the book of Ephesians, because the book of Ephesians does this very thing for us. It it shows us the position that Christians have in Christ, and what a blessing that is. So, let's read the words of the living God here together from Ephesians 1, just four verses, starting in verse 3. Verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. There's the part of the paragraph we're going to look at today. Now, I know in the original Greek, Paul got really verbose here. All the way from verse 3 to 14 is actually one long sentence in Greek. I'm breaking the sentence up into the subject here as we think about God the Father's plan of salvation. And then the next weeks we'll look at uh, what does it say about God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But the proposition I think is pretty easy for us to see here today, and I'll, I'll explain this, but here's the proposition. God wants you to worship Him, to praise Him. That's the point of this text. And I can say that for sure because you look at the very first word of the text. It's the word blessed. Uh, From that Greek word, we actually get the English word eulogy. And you know what a eulogy is, right? That's when people get up and they praise people and talk about all the wonderful stuff about them, right? That's usually what happens in eulogies. And, And so the word blessed just means that God is worthy of praise. As Paul gets into the text, that's the point he wants to make. God is worthy of praise, and why is he worthy of praise? I'm glad you asked, because the Holy Spirit is actually telling you here in the text why God the Father is worthy of all praise. 
And the first reason is, in verses 3 and 4, that, that we should praise God because he blesses us with Christ's blessing. Christ is blessed. Guess what? You get blessed if you're in Christ. And there's a couple reasons uh, or ways I, could say, I should say that we're blessed with Christ's blessing. Verse 3 tells us we're in union with Christ. So notice it's, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if you're in Christ, you're in this union with Christ. And actually, 12 times from verse 3 to 12, Paul refers to spiritual, uh, to the believer's spiritual union with Christ. It's a major theme here. 12 times he mentions this. That's how significant it is. So who is this person with whom believers are united? That's my first question as I'm thinking about this. If I'm, as, as a believer in Christ, if I'm united in union with Him, then I want to know who it is I'm united with. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you're thinking the same thing I am, because I'm going to tell you. And, and, and we, we get a, an idea of this in verse 20. We'll talk more in depth on this later when we get there, but look what it says in verse 20. As it talks about our union with Christ, it says that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And... He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Praise God, I am united to this Christ. So the Holy Spirit says we're united as believers to this very one who is above all power and authority. He is Lord. But yet, we we share, it says here, His honor and blessings because we're united with Him. And so Paul is spelling out the the blessings here as he goes on in the the book. Just think about this. Meditate on these glorious truths. that, That Christ is risen from the grave with power over sin and death. And if you're united with Him, that means you are too. And and He is seated in the heavens with the Father. If you're united with Christ, so are you. His power and the privileges exceed anything on earth. And if I'm united to Him, I get to share in that glory. Because I'm a joint heir. The Bible says He is head of all things. And all these blessings we share by being united to Christ. I can't fully explain all those things right now. We'll talk more about that later, but just take note that we are in union with Christ. And there's a lot of privileges that come with that. And number two, verse three also tells us we're in heaven with Christ. You say, no, I'm not. I'm sitting in a very uncomfortable plastic chair. Yeah, I know you are. So what does that mean? And you say, well, how am I in heaven with Christ since I'm sitting in an uncomfortable plastic chair? Well, Christ is in the heavenly realms, right? That's what the Bible tells us. He's ascended to heaven. 
And so there, if believers are united to Christ, guess what that makes you? Where are we? Well, we are also blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so because we are in union with Christ, who is in heaven, then we're in heaven with God as well. And so through our union, we're already partakers of this spiritual reality. You may not feel that way, but you should. Yeah, it's not fully realized yet because you're not glorified yet. And so this means we're already experiencing some aspects of heaven even here on earth. No, I'm not saying you can have your best life now. Please understand, that is not what I'm saying. My best life is coming in the future after I die or am raptured. But what, 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 what do we mean here that I get to experience some aspects of heaven? Well, at bare minimum, I get number, verse number 2. Because verse 2 tells me grace and peace. At least I can experience that now. I get to experience God's unmerited favor. I get to experience shalom even now in some way, some shape and form. What does that mean for me right now? Well, it means, yes, trials are still here. I experience trials. You probably do. Disease is still going to come my way. Finances are still going to be hard. Jobs and relationships are going to remain difficult for you. But in Christ, we are already home. That's the way God sees it. We don't have to worry that there's going to be, uh, whether or not there's going to be a place in heaven reserved for you and for me. Jesus is building a room for all believers in heaven. I don't have to worry about my reservation being taken by somebody else. <laughs> not going to happen. I don't have to worry, you know, is God going to receive me, you know, when I die? Is he going to receive me or not? Well, if you're in Christ, you are in union with him. And as he as God the Father receives Christ, so he receives all believers. So he's so because he's already you're you're already united, that means that makes you a part of his household. But there's a third point. As we think about all these Christ's blessings here, verse 4 tells us we are chosen in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. Because verse 4 says, even as He chose us in Him. In Christ. And when did He do that? Before the foundation of the world. The Bible teaches that we are too hopelessly lost in our sin ever to partake of God's great spiritual blessings on our own. See, you couldn't earn these, these spiritual blessings that it's, it's just talked about in verse 3. Nothing you could do to get them on your own. Instead, God in His mercy chose us, by way, us. Notice all these plural pronouns. The us is plural, referring to the church, to the Christians, the church here. So God in His mercy chose us, and then what did He do? He, he made His choice effective. How did He do that? We made our salvation possible by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sin. He lived the perfect life in your place, died the perfect sacrifice in your place, rose again from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God. 
So then he made us capable of responding to him. How do you do that? Well, you need the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth. And thus all the blessings we enjoy have to be traced back to the sovereign electing purpose of God toward us. And it's all in, notice it's in Jesus Christ. Not in me. Well, there's many objections made to the doctrine of election. By the way, I'm not desiring to lose any more friends over this particular doctrine. Please, if you have issues with this, would you come and talk to me afterward? Okay, I'd love to talk to you. I know it's a divisive doctrine. And, and one of the object, objections made against the doctrine of election is, is that God often gets called unjust. Some people say, well, it's unjust for God to choose one rather than another. Uh, doesn't God have to make everything equal? Well, that's not fair. God gets blamed. Well, my friends, let me just tell you this. We've all had a chance. But we wasted our chance, and we've all rejected God. We've all rejected the gospel, the good news. And, and really, it makes no difference how many chances you're given. We've all had many. Apart from God's sovereign work, nobody is going to follow Jesus. And so far as justice is concerned, what would justice decree for you? What does justice decree for me? Do you really want what you deserve? I don't. Neither do you. So be careful when you start accusing God of being unjust. I fear for people who do that. God says He's not unjust. He can't be unjust. He is a God of justice. See, justice decrees my damnation. Justice decrees my condemnation. Justice would sentence me to hell. And so it's not justice that we want from God. We want what this passage is talking about. We want grace. We want God's unmerited favor. And praise God, God's grace chose all believers in Christ. And so, if, uh, if you really struggle with this, let me, just, let me just give you some positive things to think about. Because some people... Some people struggle with the doctrine of election, that God chose us, the believers in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Well, election is not the problem that some people have made it out to be. This is meant to be a positive thing. This was meant to encourage Christians. In fact, it's actually a great blessing of the gospel, and there's at least it's at least a blessing in four ways. Think about this, my friends. See, the doctrine of election eliminates my boasting. I have nothing to boast about. It crushes my pride because I can't save myself. He gets all the glory. God gets the glory. It's not, wow, I'm, I'm so awesome. It's not my awesomeness that saves me. Number two, election gives assurance of salvation. See, if I think about it, my friends, why do so many people struggle with the assurance of their salvation? It's because they think they saved themselves. You know, they, they made the right choice. They chose God, so they have to keep themselves saved by what they do through their life. If you think that way, 
then you're going to be on this roller coaster all through your life. That's a horrible way to live. You're going to be up and down. I'm saved. I'm unsaved. Am I saved? I don't know. You don't really know where you stand in Christ. But if God's the one who saves you, if God does the saving, then I have assurance of salvation because I'm trusting in Him, not in me. Another third blessing is that election leads to holiness. Look what verse 4 says. Because verse 4 says that He chose us, the believers in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? What does it say? We should be holy and blameless. Some people think, well, if, if you're one of these you're fro- the frozen chosen people, then, then that, you can just do whatever you want. No, that's not what the Bible's talking about. If you think that way, then you're probably not saved. See, election will, will it trains us. And in fact, uh, Titus tells us that, that the grace of God trains us in godliness. Another thing is that election promotes evangelism. See, I don't have to be the, the greatest salesman of the gospel. I don't have to be a good salesman. I just have to be faithful. And if, if I believe that God saves, then I just have to tell them what God has done and who Jesus is and let God do the saving. And so it actually promotes evangelism, whereas if I think it, it all depends upon me, then I'm going to freak out. Because if I don't say things exactly right, if I don't get it right, if I miss some aspect of the gospel, then I'm sending the person to hell. But that's not the case. Instead, God saves. He's the one doing the choosing. And that actually helps promote evangelism because it's not all based on me. And so God's election of believers is actually an honor, a blessing that's and, and God is worthy of our praise because of this. So, but here's a question, my friends. Think about this. What if we don't feel worthy of this kind of honor? What if we don't, what if we're not capable of earning such blessing? Have you ever thought about that? What if you're not capable of earning this blessing? You don't feel worthy to be honored in this way. Well, here's the good news, my friend. And here's the second point. We should praise God because He gives us Christ's status. If you're a believer in Christ today, you have been given Christ's status. Now that's mind-boggling. That is, that'll blow you away. What status is that? And how has He done this? Well, first of all, he, we have our blame removed. We have blame that needs to be removed. Because verse 4 tells us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I need to be blameless. The problem is I'm not. Neither are you. And so I need my blame removed. So what shames us and justly condemns us is no longer held against the believer. And so as Christ is without blemish, guess what? So also are we through Christ's work. As a result, our guilt and our shame are taken away. And praise God, we, the Christians, are made blameless. And my friends, it gets even better than that. Because if you're just blameless, that's not good enough. It gets even better. Because 
Then number two, we have Christ's righteousness supplied. Because look what verse 4 says. We're made holy. We're made holy. In other words, we are holy and blameless before God the Father, and so Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. So God the Father looks at me as He sees Christ. And so through His perfect obedience, this took place. See, Christ lived the perfect life in your place. The holiness that God requires, He also supplied by our union with His Son. And by the way, this is cause for amazement. You say, why? It's because God sees me as being holy as Jesus Christ. Just meditate upon that. Holy as Jesus Christ? I don't think any of you actually think that way. Probably not. If you do, you don't think about it enough. See, not only do I have my debt wiped away, but I have the riches of Christ's righteousness applied to my account. You see, God does not pay our debt and then just leave you with a zero balance. I know it's nice. If you've ever had debt on your account, when you finally get to zero, you're, you're like, Woohoo! My debt is gone! But you're at zero. Imagine going way above and beyond that and, 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 and saying, I'm rich. That's what happens. You, you go from miserably poor and huge debt to being wealthy and rich. So rather than God leaving you destitute, you know what He's actually done? He's opened up the vaults of heaven for you. You're a joint heir with Christ. But here's another question, my friends. How could this be since I am so unworthy? I'm not worthy of those riches in Christ. I'm not worthy to be a joint heir with Christ. I'm not worthy of this union with Christ. And neither are you. So how can this be? Well, that's verse 5. Glad you asked You're asking great questions today. I really appreciate this. So verse 5 tells us that He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so the text is actually explaining the goal of God's predestination of believers. See, it was God's will and pleasure to adopt us as members of His own family, and He did it through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not through my work, not through your work. See, and and as a result, now I have this status of my Lord Jesus, and I have become a son of God. My friends, do you understand adoption? I know we have at least one person in this room who's been adopted, right? Yeah? Anybody else been adopted? You You understand how that works? See, it's actually a legal procedure uh, which secures a, a child's identity into a new family. And, and the good news is God didn't choose to be our foster parent. You know the difference? <laughs> See, often you don't, with foster parents, they don't get to keep the children, right? And, and so the poor kids get floating around all the time and never know where they are half the time. But see, We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? Because my behavior isn't always right. 
uh, and God's not going to kick me out of his family just because I have bad behavior. See, we don't have to worry day to day whether we're good enough to be a part of the family. See, God made that permanent. I am a son of God, and it's a permanent thing. It's not going to change. There's nothing that can undo that legal procedure that has bound me to my brother Christ. He died to redeem me, signed those so-called adoption papers with his blood, and so nothing can cancel that work that he's done for me. Nothing. I can't even undo that. And, and so that, now, now I'm a, I, I am free from the fear of falling away. Jesus will always be my brother. I can't do anything to change that, so praise God. Now we have a, a, a much reason to praise our Heavenly Father. And that's the point of the text. God is worthy of praise. But i got another question. And I know you do too. You've got the same question. How do we get this blessings? How do we get all those blessings and the status of Christ from God the Father? How do we get the blessings and the status of Christ from the Father? Well, that's verses 5 and 6. And, and another reason to praise God the Father is that because of our salvation that comes to us in Christ alone. How much do these blessings cost, you might ask? Well, verse 6 says that your salvation is, what? Freely given. Freely given. See, here's the first point we're going to see in verse 5, is that salvation comes without human cause. No human cause. That's what it says. See, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. And notice it's according to the purpose of his will. In other words, your salvation is not based upon what you do. You can't save yourself. You can't keep yourself saved. So, so in, in fact, human cause is not possible because verse 4 has already told us that God chose us in Christ. It's not because of anything in us. And also, God chose us when? After you did lots of good works? No. When did God choose you? Before the creation of the world, your name was written in the book of life. That means before you could ever do anything to earn the salvation. Not that you can, but it, you know, bear with the illustration here, right? So it's before we could do anything of merit, God chose to love us. By the way, there's good application here for the church because that's who's Paul writing to, the church. See, this truth, should, this truth should strengthen the church as they struggle with, with living in an evil culture. You see, the message of God's love precedes our accomplishments. It's going to outlast your failures, and therefore it should give us a very profound sense of confidence. It should give you security in a God who loves you. My security is not found in me. My identity crisis has, shouldn't, shouldn't be happening because I'm focused on me. Instead, I should be focused on God. A second point needs to be made here. We see salvation comes through God's love. Comes through God's love. As verse 6 tells us, it's to the praise of of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
And if you back up, you, you see at the beginning of, uh, well, actually at the end of verse 4, it talks about in love he's, he's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so the text tells us how believers become God's children. You're not born this way. You have to be born again. And so because of God's love, he, what did he do? He predestined us for adoption to himself. And he's the one who's done this. By the way, the word predestined, it just means that God appointed. He's determined. He's designated you for this position as his son. Why did he do it? Well, the motive in the text tells us that that God's motive in election is just love. It's love. And what purpose? What, what, what is the result? Well, the result is in election is that believers become sons. All believers become His sons. Now, why did God do all of that for us? Why did He want us to be His sons? It's not because we're awesome. It's because He just loves and wants sons. And that's the, that, that, the, the, the reason, if you will, is answered here in verse 6, that salvation comes to us for God's glory. Not your glory, but God's glory. As we just read in verse 6, it, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. See, you, you and I are saved and made sons to the praise of the glory of His grace. And by the way, you'll see that phrase repeated several times. So above all else, He elects and He saves us for His own glory. That's a marvelous text. And this text reveals a lot of reasons why you should praise God. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of praise. There's just a few reasons right there in this text. So the question is, my friend, Will you praise God? Let me just make this personal. Because there's been a lot of us and we going on in this text. How about you personally? Are you praising God? Continually praising God with your life, your words, your actions, your thoughts, your entire being? Are you praising God? Is your life revealing the the worth of God? Because as you worship Him, that's what you're doing. You're showing His worth. So the point of this text is to show that God is worthy of your praise. I hope you believe that. So will you do what? Will you do this, my friends? I'm calling you to do this. The text is calling you to do this. The Holy Spirit wants you to do this for the rest of your life. Will you praise God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for all of these reasons you've showed us that you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy to be worshipped. You've done all this for praise of your glorious grace. We know you're worthy of it. May we really believe it and act and live it. So, Father, when we, when we worship ourselves, when we desire praise of ourselves, may we see that as idolatry. May we see it for what it is. It's sin. It's not pleasing to you. May we repent. May we see you for who you are and how how low we really are in comparison to you.
May you be exalted. May you be lifted up to be seen as, as valuable and precious as you are. And may we give you that praise through our entire life and everything we think, we say, we do. May it all be done to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.